Well, hello, everybody. This is Tim Green with Rattle Magazine. Welcome to Rattlecast number 197. So glad you could join me. Today's guest, Sean R. Jones, is here. She'll be with us in just a minute. But before we begin, I should say that Rattle is a publication of the Rattle Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit working to promote the practice of poetry. We've been in continuous publication since 1995 and are unaffiliated with any other organization. We just do it because we love poetry, and I know you do too, so please do click the like button and share. Make sure you're subscribed. Ring the bell for notifications. Anything you can do to help spread poetry around the internet would be much appreciated. You can share stuff too, like tell your friends, oh, the Rattlecast is so fun. Put it on social media or Twitter. Uh, you know, meet a new poet every Monday night. Like how, how much better can you get than that? Explore a new book of poetry. So many perspectives and ideas and uh, voices coming out. So please do share it if you would. Now, um, as always, we're going to begin with our Poet Respond Poet for the week. And this week we had The Return of Thomas Mixon, who had a poem a few months ago. This one is about the new... Um, the cigarette warning labels that are going on cigarettes in Canada. But uh, here he is right now, Thomas Mixon. Hey, Thomas, how you doing? Hey, Tim. Good. How are you? I'm great. It's great to see you again. You were on it a little bit ago. Uh, it's good to have you back. So tell us about what this poem was doing and, and why you were compelled to write write about the topic. Yeah, well, I mean, I saw the headline, Poison. I think Politico had it as Poison in Every Puff. And I was just like, oh, man. I got to read, I got to see what this is. And yeah, I mean, I I think it's just going to start going into effect soon. Um, Canadian government, they're going to have in French and in English, the individual warnings right on the, right on the individual cigarettes themselves. Um, so it's a, it's a big change. Yeah. And it, it, I assume it works, you know, those warning labels, but, but it, it's strange because I, I remember living in Los Angeles and I never saw anybody smoke anywhere. And then I moved out to the mountains where I am, and then I go and play. The first time I played a softball game, I went to the field out in the in the desert down below us, and our our uh, outfielders, two of the three outfielders, were smoking in the middle of the game, like between like the fly ball would come to them, and they like put it in their mouth, and they'd be like, and catch it. And, and I was just like, I can't believe people still smoke. So well, uh, that's more. I mean, doing the two things at once—that's more than I can more than I can even do. It kind so. of was impressive, <laughs> but but not in a good way, I guess. Because I mean, you know, it, it's just. Terrible. Terrible, and I know like my kids know that it's terrible. So I don't know; it must help. But but you have a personal connection too to this, uh, too, right? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I had yeah, I had grandparents on one side who were both heavy smokers. Um, I mean, I remember you're talking about your memory from from then. I mean, I I remember growing up as a kid in the '80s and at the Bickfords and uh, near Boston, we would just be able as kids be able to play with the um, the vending machines that had cigarettes in them, and it was fun to pull all the levers and stuff like that. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, I always hated my grandparents smoking and they you know, did it for a long time and I couldn't understand. I just I didn't know why they were putting themselves at risk, us at risk. And, um, you know, they died before their time because of that. And I think, it, you know, I sort of you know, didn't think about that for a long time. And I know there was kind of a big news splash when um, different countries started putting the graphic images on the, the cartons of cigarettes. And, you know, I didn't have that same reaction I had when I was a kid. I just felt sad. And then when I saw this, I think younger Tommy would have been like, yes, I was very, um, you know, very much opposed to it. But now it just I have that sort of um, that feeling of just feeling a little bit depressed about that, about people having to put literal warnings literally inches from their nose every time they do something that either they can't stop or don't want to stop or feels good. So. 
Yeah, it's a little more nuanced, my feelings now about it. Yeah, and it makes me wonder, like, what are we doing now that might be just as bad, but, you know, that somehow we, we think it's not, you know? So um, let's hear this poem, uh, Poison in Every Puff, which is a kind of poem that, that maybe writes itself from that title, but <laughs> go ahead. Poison in Every Puff. You can quit. We can help. Times are bad, but what else is new? You clue us in with each breath to what more we must do. We failed you. We want you strong and full of vim. Life gasps and veers off the road when you suck in the smoke. We suck. We have let you down, got you hooked, raised tax on your vice, blew the dough on false threats, big flags, grabbed land, and now stand with signs, small, to stamp on your gravestones, your soot sticks, your kind, while you die. Who was it who said fate is the same as a hill built by ants? Was hope part of the quote? That's one more thing that goes in your mind. Some types of fumes are wrong, some less so. Firms pay a fine to shoot gas way up high. We must be stern with you. We gave you goals you lit with a match. If you choose to kiss flames, we will boost the font. Words so big, no one will see your gaunt face, your cheeks stuck next to text. We will taunt you to raise your mood. There is no phrase we won't use. Why waste time and ask whose fault it is? We aimed too high. Grand schemes that dropped out of the sky like fire ants at the peak of a vent that coughed, burst from thick screens while the clock tick-tocked. Shame is the last chance we have. Your charred lungs are not clean. We don't aim to be mean, but it is all the same if it works. Yeah, great poem. And that was, uh, once again, Poison in Every Puff by Thomas Mixon. And, and Tim, there's something I, I mentioned that, you know, the poem kind of writes itself because you had the shape given the length of the lines that were on those cigarettes. Those first words, you can quit, we can help, were, were what's on cigarettes already or, or going to be on the cigarettes. And then you continued in that same voice, too. Um, so, so what was it like to write the poem? Was that voice in your head and it came out in, in the way that it that felt? I, I mean, I think I sometimes have this 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 uh, sort of off and off-putting um, we voice that you know is a has a strange, complicated relationship with authority or is, is grasping for authority, and so I like to write in that. And then sometimes I like to write poems in uh, monosyllables. And so when I saw you can quit, we can help. It's just like it became 
if I start to get the first two lines that are all one syllable words, it's like, all right, how far can we go with this? Let's go. And then let's go like three times as long because you know, just to see how far. Yeah. I mean, the fascinating to me, it sounded like when I first read it, like the Hal voice from, uh, from, um, you know, the space odyssey, um, you know, that, oh, that sort yeah, of like yeah. delicate, like gentle, <laughs> like this is for your own good. Right, <laughs> exactly. like, yeah, exactly. That, uh, yeah, that, that soothing voice. But, but thanks so much for sharing that poem, Thomas. It was like excellent poem as always. And I love, you know, you send poems constantly and they're always like so different. You know, there's such a variety between the poems and styles. It's always a pleasure to read. So thanks for sharing this one. Thanks for having me back. Thanks for publishing me. Yep. Always my pleasure. Take care. See ya. Yep, that was Thomas Mixon once again with Poison in Every Puff. That was Sunday's poem. Now we're going to take a quick break and go to our main guest. Uh, Sean R. Jones is here with her book Date of Birth, so we'll be tuning in. So sit tight, sit right where you are, and I'll be right back with more poetry. And we're back. Thanks so much for your patience. As I said, tonight's guest is Sean R. Jones. Sean was born in Hartford, Connecticut, and grew up in Atlantic City, New Jersey. She's the author of two poetry chapbooks, Womb, Rain, and A Hole to Breathe. Her work has appeared in Triquarterly, New Hire Review, a whole bunch of other places. She's been nominated for Pushcar Prize right here at Rattle. Um, and elsewhere as well. Um, she has been, uh, let's see, your date of birth is her new poetry collection, which won the 2022 Lexi Rednitsky First Book Prize in Poetry and is, is out right now from Persia Books. Sean is the co-owner of Tailored Tutoring and Kumbaya Academy, Inc., a dance instructor at Halliday Dance and a member of the Langston Hughes Society in the poetry performance troupe No River Twice. Uh, she holds a Bachelor's in Arts in Psychology and an MFA from Rutgers Camden. When she's not writing, dancing, or teaching, she enjoys spending time with her family and her lucky pit bull, Ross. And here she is, Sean R. Jones. Hey, Sean. So glad you could join us. Hi, Tim. Thank you so much for having me on. It's a yeah. pleasure. It's an honor. Uh, it's just a pleasure to have you. You know, we love that poem that we got to publish last summer, and it's great to see this whole book, uh, which I'll hold up right here, Date of Birth. Do you want to go ahead and start with uh, one of the poems? Yes, uh, absolutely. Uh, Soprano from the Junior Choir at the Protest, um, which uh, Rattle published. Her larynx is raw from chanting, every diphthong and syllable aflame, each vowel broken. She cannot sing, we shall overcome. That was her grandmother's song, and she is not her grandmother. So forgive her for wanting the police precinct destroyed. Forgive her for cheering as patrol cars scream between flames. Forgive her for looting the smoke shop on the alley on James Street. Forgive her for listening to Floyd cry mama 400 times on her cell phone as she fills a bong with kerosene. Forgive her as she sticks a rag in its petite mouth, turns a soft pink cloth into wick and lights a kiss. Forgive her as she becomes the embodiment of rage, hands, feet, and heart detached, mechanical movements, unthinking, forgive her. Forgive her as she leans back, steps forward, shifts her full body weight, twists her torso, drives her elbow forward, and releases the bung, a torch bird with variegated wings. Yeah, that was a poem from last summer's issue of Rattle Soprano from the Junior Choir at the protest. And I'm glad to hear you read it in that voice, because that's how I hear it in my head, with that kind of energy. And I'm curious how that poem came to be. Was it, did it, um, did it, did it flow out of you like it feels like it did, or was it something that you tweaked and worked at for a long time? I definitely tweaked and worked at it for a long time. Um, 
and it was and I wrote it during a time of uh you know the protests and George Floyd you know shortly after that and you know I felt rage as well but I wasn't sure you know exactly what to do mm-hmm. you know with those feelings um first it was tough to admit that you know no I I am just as angry you know I'm just not acting out in this way because I know I can't act out in this way and I was wondering what you know what do I do what do I do with this you know do I go march in the streets you know and always turn to writing you know when I'm just stuck when I have no idea what to do I know that's a safe thing to do I know it's healthy um and I know it'll give me time to think about it and sit with those feelings for a while and I, it's like a healing process for me especially you know during times like that Yeah I mean it's such a so so how did you come across the uh the image of the the junior choir protester that specific detail you know not not only that's the choir but it's the junior choir and the contrast of that between you know what's going on at the protest is so cool and charged and you know it, it makes for such a great poem and, and the whole poem kind of comes out of that so how did you come on the, on the junior choir protester for that you know i tried to be um specific as possible so it took me a while i can't remember what the first title was i wish i could but what i thought about and i said okay i want to talk about this grandmother and i want to talk about the grandmother singing so i wanted this um this character to Oh, maybe I'll make the character singer. I'll put her in a, the choir. Well, not just any choir. I'll put her in a junior choir. She has to be a certain age. Um, so I fooled around with that for a while. I think quite a while. I think that was kind of, I'm not really great with titles. So I think I did that last because I kept thinking, I said, okay, I really want to write about um, how, you know, she just couldn't sing, We Shall Overcome. And then I was like, okay, so I will make her a singer. <laughs> I did a lot of time just trying to get the pieces to connect together in a poem. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, junior choir, I just wanted it to be specific. Like, this is a specific person. Like, this is a real person, even though it is not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that's always one thing I wonder about is, you know, to me, it feels like the poem has a truth that's deeper than the factual truth. Like, there's, there's like facts that you're like bounded by time and context, but then there's a truth that's deeper. Do you ever worry about, you know, that you didn't have a, an actual choir singer you were thinking of and you sort of concocted this archetype that fit the poem so perfectly? Is that something that you're concerned about at all? Or do you feel like this the poem should just speak its truth, even if there's like, you know, like lies involved or not even, I mean, lies isn't the right word, but, but, but no. blendings of reality, you know? <laughs> I am so glad that you asked that question because it is something that I have grappled with, like in writing this collection. And yeah, what I try to do is all of my poetry has some truth in it, like every poem. But, you know, I took a workshop that I've I've taken for years with Peter Murphy and I and the prompt always said to tell a secret, tell a lie and never tell which one is which. And that really helped me. And I've been doing that ever since because you really don't want to, you don't want to put someone out there, you know, or this is my friend, so-and-so. You don't actually want to use someone's name. Um, At the same time, you really want to, I guess, protect, um, protect the people or protect the truth, but also at the same time, to preserve the right, like the poem has its own world. So you want to make sure you have the world of poem, but at the same time, you're honoring the truth and what happens in reality. So I do pretty much a mixture, you know, for any poem, yeah, you know, yeah. I could point out, you know, yeah. It's a good way much. to put it. It's like you want to protect the truth from reality almost, you know? Yes. Mm-hmm. And so, um, yeah, yeah, it's a good way to think about it. And I didn't know you were a student of, um, of um, what's his name you said? 
because he was a Peter guest. Peter Murphy? Yeah, Peter Murphy. Yeah, I couldn't pull it up. But yes. Yeah, he was a guest like a long time ago. And he has a great book of prompts and, and uh, that just, yes. kind of just came out then. Yeah, yeah. So yes. um, uh, let's read another poem. And then after that, we'll talk about how you got into poetry in the first place. But what do you want to read next? Okay, let's read um to my neighbor who had the All Lives Matter sign on her lawn. When the cops spilled bullet brown milk, the authorities told the country not to cry over spilled milk. The All Lives Matter sign danced across your lawn with bare feet, a beer in one hand, toothpick between pink lips, and shimmy with the neighbors in your backyard while your daughter climbed the aluminum siding of the house next door with a black boy she loved from with a back with a black boy she loved smiled from his window, holding the other end of a sheet she had wrapped around her waist. Woman. You were only one generation from Brown. A decade or two later, you understood when you saw a cop through the peephole of your suburban door. Your hands shook as you turned the brass knob and he told you your very own grandson, tainted Brown, who you thought was safe because he could pass as an infant, had been shot. Something happened during puberty that you did not expect brown skin and coils because he refused to cut his hair. And like Kaepernick took a bow toward Africa, but it was too late for you to go in reverse, too late to proclaim Black Lives Matter when that guilty cop who pulled the trigger dined at home with his family while you cried at the grave of a brown child you never imagined you could love. And that was... Uh... To my neighbor who had the All Lives Matter sign on her lawn, once again, from uh, Date of Birth, the new book out by Sean R. Jones. So so how was it that you came to become a poet? You know, it's always, it's such a strange direction to go for anybody. And uh, so I'm always curious, like, was there something that, that, you know, inspired you early on? Or did you always want to be a writer? Or did you find a poem that moved you? How was it that you became a poet? I didn't. Um, it's funny. My mother wrote poetry. Mm-hmm. She, I mean, she just had poetry laying around the house and she had poetry books. So I was a child born in the the 60s. So she had a book titled Cotton Candy on a Rainy Day by Nikki Giovanni. And I loved cotton candy as a child. And I I, I live, you know, I grew up in Lang City. So cotton candy, boardwalk. And when I saw the book Cotton Candy on a Rainy Day, and then as a child was thinking like, oh, it's rainy and a cotton candy. I had this whole image. So I picked the book up and I started reading it. And it was the first poetry book I read. And I continued to read it. And I was like, oh, this is really cool. And I went to meetings with my mom all the time because she was, you know, doing the whole uh, civil rights thing, meetings, marching in the streets. And she would give me a notebook and say, just write, just write. Don't bother me unless you have to go to the bathroom. And I would just write poetry that I didn't really know was poetry at the time. But yeah, and I just continue, you know, from there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and so, um, you know, the, the book is very politically charged, I guess you could say. And and I wonder what, what you think... Um, how do we benefit from that, from writing poems that, that are this political charge? Because the, the problem is that, that you might think is that you're kind of preaching to the choir because everybody who's going to read the book is going to kind of agree. And so is it a sense of solace? Or are you hoping to branch out and find words for things um, that, that, that might be hard to articulate? What is it that drives you to write a poem in the first place? You know, I think, you know, 
actually, I can't say I sit down and I plan like, oh, I'm going to write this politically charged poem. When I first write, I don't really think about audience. You know, I'm just really you know, just writing my feelings down, you know, just being honest um, without really policing myself while I'm writing. And kind of what, what I, whatever comes up, comes up. And I just work with what I have. And I don't think too much about, uh, you know, audience, because then I think I really, you know, I won't write my truth. Mm -hmm. So pretty much, I don't know if that answered your question now. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, oh, I just remember. Okay, so I think what I'm trying to do differently is I'm really trying my best to, I guess I would say, try to humanize, you know, people who just honestly don't see African-Americans the same as they may see themselves. Like, you know, we love, you know, we we have children, we have feelings, you know, and I try my best to just create, you know, just individuals in the poems, you know, characters, so they can relate to um, my characters as, you know, like people with feelings and, 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 you know, not just, I guess, a monolith of uh, just the way people, you know, some people see us. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing that I love. Does about poetry. Why, no, it does. Yeah. And, and that's why I love what poems do, because poems, you know, you, the, the breath of the, the writer enters your body as you say a poem, you know, it's your, you, their breath becomes your breath. And there's like no connection more intimate. And so there's no way you can feel more ent- em- empathy than a poem. And so, so I just love that aspect of it. But then there's the problem of like, like getting somebody who wouldn't usually read it. Like they're the person who needs it most is the person who wouldn't read it. So how do you get past that is always the challenge. Is there anything you, you do or think about in that regard? Yeah. I mean, I'm always hoping that things are just sort of working together and that I am reaching people who wouldn't read it. Like people who may look at this book, the cover and think, oh, I'm not reading that book. Mm-hmm. I'm still trusting, you know, I have, I'm still trusting that, but they may be so curious. This is really a great cover. They may be really curious too. And just kind of just open, you know, let me just see what this is about. Um, I trust that it really is going to just reach an audience that I may not expect to reach, which has already happened actually, you know, when I'm at readings um, and I was at a reading recently and someone did say to me afterwards, you know, you're, you're not just a black poet. I, I didn't say I was a black poet, you know, but she was just saying, you know, you really touched me with your writing. And so I am reaching people that I didn't expect to reach mm-hmm. in ways that I did not um, expect to um, connect with them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when we put honesty mm-hmm. out there, it, it connects with people. It really does. Um, yeah. Yeah. Let's hear another poem. Um, next up, I think I have uh, Admission of Guilt. Yes. Admission of Guilt. Okay. Um, just a little background information about this poem. All right, let me see what page that is. Um, so it's difficult because when you're when you're raising African American children, you have to decide between if they're going to go to school. It, it depends on where you live in a district where um, they may get a substandard education because you're in an underserved district or send them to a really great school, you know, outside of the city where they're going to deal with racism. And it's just always, you're always just trying to create that balance. And so this poem kind of came out of that. And I I don't mind saying that um, this poem is uh, pretty true. (laughs) Pretty much. Um, Admission of guilt. Their first home was in the bowels of Camden, 
I gave them birth. It gave them depth for wherever the wooden legs would take them. They would remember the shack out back with no windows, men and women coming in and out of its wounded orifices like rodents foraging for food, sex, drugs. They would remember the 75 pounds of cocaine that fell from the sky and landed on our freshly poured stoop. It fell like snow. So I told them, it is snow, but keep your tongue in your mouth. They would remember the woman running naked in front of my car with rain shrunken hair and bloody beige breasts. They would also remember yellow buses carrying them a couple towns over to an immaculate school where they were not allowed to color Jesus with the angels brown. Yeah, that was admission of guilt. Again, we're reading poems from uh, Sean R. Jones' book, Date of Birth. Um, and, and Dick Westheimer here on the chat had a, had a good point about what I said before. He mentioned, you know, I'm not sure I agree with Tim. All readers, even those who agree, are subject to have their empathy engaged more uh, my po- with poems and just social predisposition, predisposition. And yeah, I think that's true. You know, even if you, you agree, you know, that empathy machine that a poem is enriches your understanding of anything. And we can always have more of a detailed enrichment too. Um, can you, can you talk about, um, the cover? Cause it is a beautiful cover. It's really perfect. In it, and it will read the poem later that I think it's drawn from that, that pulling up the children onto the, the levee. Um, but, but we'll look at the cover here, but how did you choose that as the cover of the book and, and how did the cover uh, come about? Um, per Persia was, um, excellent, you know, was sending me like different artists. They asked me, you know, what, you know, what I wanted, what, what did I, what was my vision for the cover? So I explained my vision to them. I sent them some pictures. And eventually, you know, they found an artist that they thought would be perfect, you know, for the cover and for the book. And I looked at a few of um, Kajra's, um, his paintings. And this particular painting, let me make sure I have this title exactly right, um, Preserved from the Flood too. I just thought it was perfect. So they reached out to him or um, and he agreed, you know, said it was okay for us to use it. So my publishers were really great, you know, with that, because I was kind of at a loss for, oh, I don't know what to, <laughs> I don't know what should go on this cover. <laughs> yeah, it is a tough thing. I mean, some covers are really easy to put together and some are just, you know, you go over and over and over different options and trying to find the right one is so hard. So when you finally do, it's just a great feeling. Yeah, and I didn't want it too literal. So I was just like, oh, what do I want to do? But no, they were, they were awesome. Mm-hmm. Well, let's hear the next poem. So we were just talking about the cover, um, and this is a poem I was thinking of um, when I selected that cover, and this is The Undertow. The Undertow. I keep going back in the ocean to throw another child up on the jetty, and I can't swim, but I can't stop myself. Everything I do is in response to my father's death. Grief and guilt are my buoyancy. He died in 1991 of a heroin overdose in an America that didn't care about him. I am angry. I stay angry, even when I'm laughing. My dad came to me for prayer, admitted to slipping back, tugged my hand toward the floor. We kneeled like children in a prayer book, 
elbows on the cushion of a blue sofa. He thought my faith had power, thought my God had answers. So after his death, I set out to prove that we are not powerless. I parented my children under the weight of this grief, taught kids to read, wrote until my vision blurred, danced like I was trying to get rid of something. I am tired, I stay tired, but not one day will go by without me trying to swim in an ocean that has tried to drown me many times. The first time I was five. My father was getting high under the boards. I strolled off in a red bikini with a teal pail full of seashells and sand. I walked out too far. Waves twisted me like seaweed. The ocean was ready to receive me like coral. A lifeguard reached his hand down, yanked me up by my braids, and flipped me into a boat with such force he bruised my back. It was a great, it was one of the greatest acts of love I have ever known. He did not love me, but I think he loved life and maybe he loved children or humanity. It didn't matter that I was brown. That is how I want America to love me. That is how I wanted America to love my father. Whenever I get angry at white America, I think of that lifeguard, his pink lips over mine, breathing breath into my lungs, pale hands compressing my chest, my ribs cracking till I spit out an African knife fish flapping without fins. Now, every day I grab a brown child, I realize we're both afraid of the same water. But I must pretend I know what I am doing. And sometimes, after a long day of throwing child after child up on the jetty, I want to stop moving. Let the ocean have me with one hand up, eyes wide open. Yeah, that's such a beautiful poem. I love that that image and metaphor. Um, that uh, that is how I want uh, America to love me. Uh, that is how I want America to love my father. Um, and that's really that feels like the heart of the book. That poem, which is why it's such a great choice uh, for the cover there. Um, what do you think about about how we get to that place? You know, I mean, what is the the way forward for for making that happen? Is it poetry? I guess is like the the leading question, and maybe it is. So what place do you mean specifically? Yeah, that that feeling that love, that that unconditional love. Okay, you know, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. 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 Maybe I mean, I think poetry is definitely a help. I, I think it, it does matter. It matters what we write. And I've had several people, you know, just in my own experience, people who come up to me and they've told me that, you know, that poem changed the way I think. And I'm always surprised by that. I've probably only heard that twice but I am you know I'm really surprised by that so yeah I, I do think poetry yeah could be a gateway to to us reaching that place mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so so uh talk about your writing process a little bit um because there's such a there's such a great energy in all these poems like the you know the the voice is so strong in it how do you how do you cultivate that voice because to me it's difficult to write a voice with that kind of intensity in like multiple drafts and things, it feels like it comes out sort of spontaneously if it's in that sort of voice. So is that how you go about a poem? Is it is it like a free write where you're finding the voice? How, how does a, a poem come to be? So that particular poem, really, it came out spontaneously. You know, I was 
I was actually taking a class called Writing a Selfie with um, Greg Pardlow, and he told us to write, you know, just write, you know, a, the, the, the selfie that we don't see in your selfie photos. And I try my best with all of my poems to just, you know, write without policing myself and just write continuously. And that first draft is full of passion and energy. And sometimes I will write 50, 60 drafts of the same poem. And I do realize that I do lose that energy like after a while, you know, after I'm just trying to sound like a poet <laughs> and I lose the energy. I start off, I have all this energy and everything's just so visceral, you know, and then I have to go back after I've written poem 56. I've done this a few times and I'm like, what, what happened? You know, and I have the, the document and I'm down on page 56. I'm like, okay, where did I lose that voice? Mm -hmm. Where did I stop telling the truth? Where did I get nervous? And what, where did I start pulling away? Where did I think I'm, I'm sharing too much of myself? I'm giving too much. I'm being too open. I'm being too risky. Where did I change that? Where did I shy away from it? And I go back to maybe draft number seven. And on that draft, I forget everything else and say, you know what? Stay right here. This is this is what you're running from. This is what you don't want people to know. And I go all in for what you don't want people to know for some strange reason. I just think is is necessary. Yeah, it's so interesting to hear you put it that way. To like, where did I where did I leave the truth behind? You know, or my truth behind? Because it feels like reading submissions. That's what I'm looking for. It's just like honesty and like an authentic truth that someone's sharing. And so many times, it's like overwhelmed by the 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 attempt at making poetry out of something you know and, yeah. and so there's a there's a way that like like voice and craft are almost in competition and and so yes definitely so did you ever have trouble um with that aspect of it with um you know did you have to find a way to to be bold enough to tell your own truth or was it um uh something that you always had i i feel like that it is something, you know, that I'm I'm good at. And I honestly have to attribute that to my mom because she's always been so open with me, you know, with everything, you know, including, you know, the details about her life, you know, things that you would think you wouldn't tell your daughter, you know, um, she's told me just about everything. So it was quite natural for me just to be very transparent because I'm a very transparent mom. Um, but I have struggled, you know, because, you know, I'm my own person and I'm just like, oh, is this, you know, is this too much? And I, you know, I struggle every now and then with, you know, how much truth do I really want to tell here? And with craft as well, you know, I'm like, oh, sometimes I just want to just oh, forget the craft. I'm just say what I want to say. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. Most times it, it it is not as difficult to come out with that truth. If anything, I have to pull back sometimes, like, do I really have to like really tell all this? Is this? you know, how are people going to feel about this? And I don't want to make people too uncomfortable, but I've gotten over that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so do you hesitate sometimes yeah. to, to, to speak the truth? I do. I believe so because I still have a lot of poems. I have a lot of poems here that I, I really feel like I haven't really, I haven't touched some subjects that I would like to touch that I think I will eventually. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that's a good place for a poet to be, for sure. You never want to run out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, well, let's hear another poem. And I should say, if anybody has any questions for Sean, please leave them in the chat windows, either on Facebook or YouTube. I'm watching both. Uh, just people loving the poem so far. That's really, really powerful work, Sean. So thanks for sharing these with everybody. But let's hear the Thank next you. one. Okay. After watching a wren sing on the windowsill, 
I sang Tina Marie's Out on a Limb to my husband in front of our bay window. I balance fishnet thighs and swollen feet and red stilettos, and he kisses my body, the moles on my neck and face. Our shadows streak the nightlight lit walls, and although I do not understand his pleasure, I know a woman's flesh does not lose value over time. So when his lips move across me, when he speaks to the soft spots like they have feelings, like they still carry some miracle we've conceived, I know I am holy, both in what has been lost and what has been sustained. Decades I have been out on this pain, and if I fly away, I want him to hear me singing, chest out, beak agape. And that was um, uh, that was after watching a wren sing on the windowsill again. Poems from Date of Birth by Sean R. Jones, and uh, Sean. It's not often that a uh, poet comes across with a degree in psychology. So I'm wondering, um, how, how, do, how does that influence your poems? Because you mentioned wanting to be very detailed about the characters you write and using, um, you know, sort of a, an amalgam of people into one character, like in the choir, the junior choir singer. Um, how, how, what's the role of psychology in understanding that and that degree? Does that play into poetry? Yeah, that's a good question. I'm sure it does. You know, it's been it's been a long time you know, since I've been in school studying psychology. Studying psychology, um, but I think it must. You know, I have to think about that for a bit. Mm-hmm. But I think it, I think it must. I know it helped me with the rearing of my children. It helps me when I'm, you know, in my business when I'm tutoring. It helps in all that. So. I'm, I'm thinking that it definitely it definitely has to. Yeah, I'm going to think about that more. <laughs> well, what I'm wondering is if it has to do with, um, you know, just an interest in people, you know, an interest in kind of seeing people from their own perspective, which is something that, of course, is impossible to do, but but it's so interesting to try. I'm thinking about um, mm-hmm. our last issue was the Irish poets issue. You know, and, and you think of, um, you know, if you think of Irish poetry, you think of like, you know, past, uh, you know, uh, the countryside and all of that yes. kind of like nature <laughs> and like the green everywhere. And, and then really it turned out that all the poems we were getting were all about personal relationships and about how the, the family dynamics play out and how the town dynamics play out and how, you know, someone you met once changed your life. And that was really the theme of everything, even among those, uh, you know, pastoral, supposedly Irish poets. And I wonder if how much, you know, poetry is, is like an interest in psychology drives poetry do you, like, do you think that's part of it i think so yeah i would say definitely in order to write about people you have to be interested in people you know mm-hmm. you have to you have to study people you know also it's not just um if you so i i guess the answer is yes that i'm interested in studying people which is why i actually majored in psychology so i believe it does all it all goes hand in hand yeah and, and then the other question is sort of a follow-up too is how does dance play into it too because i mean psychology dance and poetry are all interesting things to be interested in and um you know in poetry is a kind of dance of breath or something like that so so how does dance play into your poetry dance oh my goodness so uh, my poetry my poetry is a dance I really, I really feel like it is a dance. 
um, the rhythm, the way I read it. Um, and I've also, I've taught like poetry dance workshops. So I've combined poetry and dance a lot, but definitely with my poetry, I believe that your words have to, sounds corny, but they have to dance on the page. They have to connect in a certain way, a certain rhythm. And I think there's something that, you know, comes kind of natural for me as far as being rhythmic with the words. Um, but yeah, I can't seem to separate poetry from dance. Dance from poetry. <laughs> is is teaching dance similar to teaching poetry? Is there anything uh, like like what do they have in common? It is. Um, I know when when I'm teaching my when I'm teaching someone poetry, I, I talk about how if you're, let's say, for example, if you're dancing, you know, and you're doing a step like this, and I actually physically get up and do this, if you're kind of dancing step, 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 I said, that's, that's the way you want your words to sound. Hit, hit, you need a beat, you need a beat, you need a beat. And if all of a sudden you're just like, if you're dancing like that, you know, it feels odd and it looks kind of odd. And if you're writing and all of a sudden you have this rhythm and then it's just like, and if it's not meant to be a turn, then it's just, it's all messed up. Mm -hmm. unless it's meant to be a turn you know exactly what you're doing and you're going to go on to something else so i do i use rhythm and dance i use rhythm and poetry and i go back and forth to say okay and if you're writing like vice versa so if you're writing and let's say you're you're dancing i'll talk about dancing so you need this poem to do this you know keep it in line you know unless you have some reason for mm -hmm. you know going out of those lines yeah, you know, I'm terrible at dance. I I can't dance, but um, but but I wonder is it because I think about classical music as an example of how everything in a poem like refers to some movement earlier in the poem. Like there's some way that the initial sounds shape the poem um, and, and make it come to be just through like the momentum and, and repeating patterns and mm -hmm. shifting patterns. Yes. Is, is yes. that what works in dance? Like I don't know what kind of dance you do. Um, do you do like a spontaneous type of dance too? Is that part of it? I do nothing. I'm so clueless about dance. It's embarrassing. But um, but, but, but is there is there a way that dance works like that where um, you know, the 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 beginning movements become like referred to and, and sort of shape the future of, the, of yes. the dance? Yeah. Yes, like poetry. I'm glad you said that. Yes, absolutely. So you may come back to a move. You may come back to several moves. It's just like a song. Like you have you have a chorus. You know, you come back to that you know that part of the dance. Just like with poetry, like repetition, you repeat steps in the dance. Um, and you try not to repeat them too much because after a while, you're going to get tired of someone stepping side to side, side to side, just, just like in a poem. Mm -hmm. It's like, okay, can can we have some new words here? Can we... <laughs> you know, that's a, it's very that's similar. A, that's a great example of how, I mean, I was playing uh, pickleball, of all things, with somebody. And they showed me this poem. You know, it's someone like, you know, it's like, I'm not a poet, but I want to show you this poem. And it's like just mm -hmm. this monotonous you know, rhyme that just go, you know, and the meter is the same every time. And that's a great way to put it. Like, this is like a dance where you're just taking two steps back and forth over and over and over again. And like, yes. of course, I'm going to get bored. So that's a perfect way to explain it, actually. I love exactly. that. Exactly. And I do all forms of, you know, I've done all forms of dance, you know, ballet, jazz, tap, African is my favorite. Um, I dance spontaneously. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, let's let's hear the next uh, the dance poem. Let's hear hear what you have next. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's see what do I have here. Okay, so today my cousin Brenda would have been fifty. Today my cousin Brenda would have been fifty. 
The woman we called morning limped down Ellington Street asking for a dollar. Everyone knew it was just a matter of time. Government wasn't an enabler, no Narcan to resurrect zombies. Folks dropped, leaving brown puddles, heroin ate people. Every day, a little thinner, disappearing into clothes like ghosts. Till they were ghosts on Ellington forever. Their nothingness enough to change moods of stray cats and dogs. Morning would be no different. Last time I saw her, she swallowed her teeth before she opened her mouth to speak. You remember me? Is she mean from yesterday? I searched her eyes, tried to look inside her. We used to eat crayons together. I saw something familiar, delightful, plates full of crayons. Her sitting in a yellow romper, legs hardwood floor brown, two front teeth missing, mouthful of colored wax laughing. And that was uh, today, my cousin Brenda would have been 50. Another really touching poem from this book of poems, Date of Birth by Sean R. Jones. Um, and so we talked a little bit about how, you know, how the characters aren't necessarily true. So how much of that goes into play in this book? Like how much are you protecting the, the true identity of people and, and how much are you playing with, with archetypes and characters and, and mixing that around? That's that's a tough question. <laughs> that is a tough question. Hmm. I I believe that I have more truth than anything else. And if they are archetypes, it's just kind of um, I just something that's just sort of just out there naturally, but. I would say that I'm very careful. So a lot of times, and, and I just give this advice all the time to writers, because you don't want to just put someone's information out there without talking to them. I know some people are okay with that, but you, like I discuss and talk with my family. But if there's something you really want to tell, you don't really have to say, oh, you know, it was my second cousin on my mother's side, mm-hmm. <laughs> so, right? For example, if you, don't have an older sister, you could say my older sister. You can yeah. make, or you don't have to say that at all. You can just make something up completely. But I'm pretty comfortable with it because I talk to my family members and we're, we're very open. And what people probably don't know that this is a compilation of like three generations. I've talked to my great aunt who's down in her 90s and she shared her stories with me. My family is very open, you know, about sharing their stories with me. And a lot of times I'll just write I, you know, if it's someone, you know, someone who is close to me or, you know, but it's okay if you share my story. You just don't write my name. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's always really interesting to me. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. because it's just, you know, some poets you talk to and and they say, um, you know, it's my it's my experience because I've witnessed it. And so it's my I'm telling it no matter what. And then other poets, you know, say, you know, no poem is worth losing a relationship over. And so there's a whole continuum between those two. And it's always interesting to see, you know, it's difficult to know where to land on that topic. It um, is. It's it's very difficult. But I do know there are, you know, there's some poems in the book where I am the I. So I don't, you know, great. I don't have to ask anyone anything ahead of time. And I just kind of, I just write the poem. Yeah. yeah and, and so so one of the topics in the book that comes up frequently is addiction and, and the heroin in yes. particular. Yes. And, yes. And, and what do you, you know, there's a way that, 
you know, if you read the literature about addiction, it, it's almost like a, it's part of like a meaning crisis or something, you know, like, like people become addicted because there's nothing better to do. Like the, you know, and, and as we have, you know, in, in this country in particular, you know, you say like, what do you do? It means like, what job do you do? Like there's a sense of like worth coming out of jobs and as like jobs go away yeah. and become more difficult to come by. There's like nothing left to give you meaning. And, and yeah. can you talk a little bit about just how that addiction plays and, and, you know, what's going on, like what the crisis really is? What's the problem? Because that's my take on it, but I don't really know how accurate that is. Yeah. So, you know, and this is something that, you know, I'm very open. I'm very open about. Um, my father died, you know, of a heroin overdose, mm-hmm. um, you know, during a time where, you know, people were just called junkies. You know, they didn't say, oh, you know, it's a disease. We need to help these people, et cetera. Um, so, I guess when things change, you know, you know, years after his death, I just started thinking about him, you know, differently and about, you know, heroin being a disease. And it's, it's just something I haven't been able to just walk away from, you know, and he, he did, you know, die in 1992. It may have been 91, but it's something that has been very difficult for me to just let go of. Like I stayed in 1992 for so long, mm-hmm. you know, because of the tragedy. And I've been kind of writing myself away from it and out of it. <laughs> and I do feel like the more I write about it, that I'm getting further away from that. And then I end up talking to people who have had a very similar experience. Um, but yeah, it's something I'm definitely very open about. And it does come up a lot in my work. And I said, oh, you know, maybe one day this won't come up. And I do realize in my new collection that it hasn't come up yet. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, I think that, you know, the point of poetry, kind of the real reason we do it is to heal ourselves, you know, and we talk about that all the time, about how it, it, there's these psychological wounds that we have that just, unless there's a way to close it, there's no like way that it scars by itself. We need a way to like bridge that wound and poetry and art are ways to do that. And so eventually we, you know, we, we find a way to do that with our voice and we bring that out in poems and then we can finally move on. And so, so mm-hmm. do you, do you feel like yes. you've, you've had that like through publishing this book and the first two chapbooks, do you feel like you found a kind of closure to that wound? Definitely. I do. And I won't say, you know, I won't say completely, you know, I don't know if that's something that you ever, you know, quite get over or can be healed from completely, but, you know, I'm least able to, you know, function and move forward. And I found a way um, to kind of deal with that tragedy, you know, that I didn't know how to deal with it before. And that is just in, you know, just trying to help the people who are here. That's over. You know, it's, it's nothing I can do about it. I can't go back to it. I can't save him. You know, I don't feel that guilt that I used to feel. And I just think now my focus has to be on the younger generation, you know, and just trying my best to be open and honest with them and just have open conversation about things that, you know, they, they're going through, Mm -hmm. you know, currently that may be similar, may or may not be similar. Yeah. Well, it feels like it's just even more pervasive than it was then, you know, 30 years ago, because especially with like fentanyl everywhere and so cheap and and it's so easy. You know, I was talking to my kids about it because my daughter's in seventh grade and it's all over the place down there. And, uh, and, you know, I had to tell her, like when I was a kid, you know, usually you know, you get, you get messed up and you'd be okay. Cause you get over it. But now it's like, you could, you could take something and you'd be dead, 
you know, and um, yeah, it's just it's frightening to think about and to see, and especially as we encounter like you know, as the sort of economy and the way the world is structured sort of slowly falling apart, you know, that, yes. that there's going to be more and more of it and more you know easier access to these uh, the drugs that that relieve people from that lack of meaning. I think. So, so what do you what would you say to like a young kid who is in a world like this? Like, how do you find a way to avoid that? When you say in a world like this, you mean a young kid who's using or a young kid who it's maybe just, parents? You know, are it's using? around everywhere. You know, there's nowhere yeah. that you can. There's no way to escape it. it you know, it is everywhere. Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm not I'm not a therapist or a counselor. That's for sure. You know, I don't have a. Um, a degree in um, therapy, but I really do. Like I talk to parents and say, you know, it may be good if you talk to a therapist with your child, you know, I don't have the answers, you know, for that. And it, it absolutely is everywhere. But I do remember, you know, a time, you know, in the community where I was living, it already felt like it was everywhere. Yeah. Even when it wasn't supposed to be everywhere else, it felt like it was everywhere. I don't feel like I, this doesn't feel new to me. You know, it just seems like it was an issue that was everywhere at a time um, in our community. It just wasn't, it wasn't addressed. You know, that's just my personal feelings mm -hmm. on it. So it's not much of a change for me. So why it feel, while it feels like it's like everywhere now, I feel like it's not everywhere for me because I'm further away from that. My yeah. family's different. Everything's changed. We learn from the experience. We're living differently. So mm -hmm. I don't know, I guess it's, um, uh, so, so how did you personally. avoid it? You know, how did, you know, cause we, it's so hard. It's so easy to sort of become our parents. Like it's something we're all sort of struggling oh. not to do, you know? Yeah. Oh. So was it, the, was it the poetry that, that, you know, helped you not to do that? That's a good question. Well, for one, um, my mother didn't do it. So mm -hmm. that helps, <laughs> you know, that really, really helps. Yeah. Um, you know, my, my mother, you know, she was a great example. You know, she graduated from Rutgers and I saw her continue to, you know, move forward education, education, education. And what kept me just away from it was one, you know, the fear, the fear of dying. Mm -hmm. You know, I already saw, you know, what it did to people, not just heroin, but what crack cocaine did to people in our community. I witnessed that firsthand. So I saw what that looked like and I didn't want that to be me. Um, and for one thing, you know, I don't even like to take Tylenol. I don't I'm, I'm just so and I think it's because of that experience that I don't like anything that alters how I feel because, yes, I am traumatized from that. And I found it quite easy to stay away, you know, from all of that. But I would say, you know, just a lot of, um, you know, people who were, you know, successful in my family moving forward, they were doing something different. And me, you know, just knowing that, you know, I had to be an example. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting too to mention, like, even just Tylenol. You know, I, I just saw today some random stat that the average American adult is on, on 3.8 medications like right now which is uh hard <laughs> to imagine that yes um, yeah yeah and so it's just you know everywhere and, and having a you know coming to terms with the life as you have it is just so important and, and i think you know just to get back to the same topic all the time but poetry is a way to like like find that and to notice life right and, and to it, it is it is but when you say that to people you know they think you're just kind of making poetry bigger than bigger than what it is but I honestly feel like it has saved my lives and life in so many different ways, you know, over, you know, not just that trauma, just, just life period, you know, being, um, African-American, um, 
dealing with racism, you know, you write yourself through it. You write yourself through the trauma. You write yourself through everyday living. And yeah, and it's true. I mean, it works. It works for it works for me. I can't mm-hmm. say it's it's not. It doesn't cure everything, but it is definitely a help. And it, it definitely it gets you somewhere close to somewhere leading you toward healing and toward um, some type of closure, like you said earlier. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. uh, we have a little bit of time and two more poems left, so let's do the second to last poem, which was a poem after receiving my DNA test results. Yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Okay, I did receive those DNA test results. (laughs) Poem after receiving my DNA test results. I've I've delivered sun streams and moon streams, Siamese green swans and navy blue cages, tangled seaweed, goblin, shark skin, tree stumps and tree trunks, diamonds and dung, root fruit, the Congo, Benin, Ireland and Italy, buttocks and breasts, Silk, handmade quilts, cotton, tobacco, sugar, and shit. Sickle cell, slave holds, polluted ocean dump, vines and ropes, maples and oaks, virtue and vultures, human wine and flesh, chunk, soil, mantle, and crust. Four billion years of spine, bone, and grime. And that's a that was a poem after receiving my DNA test results, and it's a great example of what we were talking about a little bit before of how the the sounds of a poem generate the entire poem. You know, there's that streams, moonbeams, Siamese green, and it, you know, and it ends on a spine bone and grime. And so anybody who thinks that you know that that rhyme is gone in poetry is completely wrong, as you can see there. But um, but but how do you so so you know you have these poems? How do you know when a poem is finished? And you know how do you know when you have a poem that's like a real poem? Like how do you know like like what is a poem that like works? And how do you know it when you see it? Him is just never finished. Like you could just honestly. So I, I could go on forever. Like I could just go on forever and forever. And I have, and I was like, you know what? I'm never going to get this done if I just keep going. And, you know, you can send it to one person and another person, another person. This person says this doesn't work and that doesn't work and this doesn't work. And you don't have to say, hell, you know what is this is working for me. I need to do what works for me Mm -hmm. because five different people want to tell you five different things. And I feel like if it works for me, then I think it will. I want to connect with some audience, you know, so it 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 doesn't it could never I could revise every poem in this book. You know, I look back on it and I'm just like, oh, I should have said that. But it's out there. I'm glad. (laughs) (laughs) So you don't really you don't really you don't know. Mm -hmm. You don't know. You just have to be you have to be okay with where it is. If you want to fool around with it later after it's published, that's fine. But if a great publisher, a press takes it, you're like, they took that one. Like, really? (laughs) That's So that's why you don't know. Mm -hmm. I'm just like. But, but I thought this one was so much better. The Undertale has been published five times. Mm-hmm. I'm like, really? You just don't know. Yeah, it's interesting. So, <laughs> so what do you what do you look for in a poem that you're reading? You know, is there something that 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 a successful poem does in your mind that that you know an unsuccessful poem doesn't pull off? Oh, that's that's a tough question because, hmm. Well, Sam. That's what's important. You know, even if if I read a poem and let's just say you have all these sounds, doop, bop, boop, doop, bop, boop, 
dun, 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 boop, bop. You know, I'm a dancer. So I'm like, oh, that's a poem. I can feel that. I can dance to that poem. I can dance to those words, you know? Um, and uh, cliches. I, I don't want to read cliche. the cliches. You know, just get rid of the cliches. Unless you're fooling around with that cliche for a reason. So I'm looking for it to be as original as possible. I mean, everything's out there. It's kind of hard not to repeat something in some way. But you have to add some kind of something different, you know, to kind of catch my mind. But pretty much the sound, I connect to sound first. If it has a really good sound. And then I read and say, oh, what's this po- what is this poem about? And I love if someone throws something in there that's... Um, that I just don't know and I have to look it up and then I understand how it connects to the poem. I'm like, oh yeah, <laughs> they did some research. I'm not really great with that, but that's something I'm working on. But you have a lot of, I have a lot of respect for that. Mm-hmm. I have a lot of friends who are really great poets. I just, I just admire their work and it's, yeah, they're brilliant, you know, the sound yeah. and, and some people can write about like Greek mythology and all that. I'm like, I have no idea what you're talking about, but okay. <laughs> well, that's true. Even after like 20 years of this job, I always talk about it. I'm the, but I don't know. I, I can't keep a Greek mythology straight. And so you get those poems. I I, I'm looking up like... Wikipedia every single time. <laughs> and it's just like, which one was that one? Oh, it was that one. But yeah, <laughs> it, it's never going to stick in my head. Same thing. But yes, yeah, the sound that drives me. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's definitely the sound that drives me. Yeah. Are there any poets that you could recommend? That, that people might not be as familiar with? Yeah, all of my friends are coming to mind. I don't know if that's good or not. No, it's good. But yeah. anyway. <laughs> sure, sure. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, definitely. I just don't want to leave anybody out now. But, I mean, I have... Eh, the people who blur my book are amazing. J.C. Ty, Greg Parlow, um, Patrick Rizal, Um, They're all absolutely amazing. They're on the back of my book. And... I have been reading them for years and just inspired by them. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm scared to name some friends. I'm not going to get in trouble and leave anybody out. I'm going to leave it at that. Yeah, that's a good. That's a good choice. I hate. I hate that question too. But people really, you know, they like references, so it's you know it's something that comes. They up. do. Um, Toy Derek Reader, you take that. Yeah. So, so you mentioned, uh, you know, what you're working on now being a little different from what what this book is. So what what is it that you're working on now? Because we got a little bit of time left, and then we'll do the last poem. But but what mm-hmm. is it that your your next book is going to be like? I, I'm not sure. You know, I'm going. You know, I'm going to Italy for six weeks. Oh wow! And I'm cool. hoping. I'm hoping when I get there, um, that I don't know that the. I don't have the time to figure out what I'm doing, but I'm I'm thinking I might write my mother's story, you know, in a poetry book. I'm not sure. She's so open and just telling me everything. I don't know. I'm just struggling with that. But right now I do notice that I'm, what I'm trying to do is in a, within a poem to tell the truth, but then try to lift, you know, lift people's spirits at the same time. He's just something in every mm-hmm. poem. And I, I'm, I'm actually finding it kind of difficult. Yeah, that's one thing, you know, that, that comes up to with me a lot, you know, because poetry, because it's healing, it ends up being about the wounds that we have so often. And then, yes. you know, to people who aren't participating and getting that healing from their own poems, you know, and sort of relating, it ends up being like, oh, this is such a downer. Like, why, you know, this is what I, I hear that a lot. Like, why? what I read contemporary poetry when it's all so negative. And so, you know, right. I try to find poems that are like funny to like throw in a mix, you know, and, and, and uplift, yes. but, but they're hard to come by. And so Ross, Ross gay. I'm sorry. When you said that, I just thought about, you know, how oh, yeah, he writes about sure. delight. Mm-hmm. Yes. He's a good one to read. Definitely. Because 
Yeah, he he does something that I find very difficult to do. <laughs> <laughs> do you, do you think? I guess the question is though: Do you think we like should or do we have to balance it out? That's one thing. Like I always, I'm torn between: Do we just like throw what needs to be written out there, or do we try to find like balance and something positive occasionally and and something funny occasionally? Um, when mm. the, when so much of it is, and it's so great to to be able to have this like healing type poetry. Do you think there's a need for for lighter things too? I think so, but it doesn't mean, you know, that I'm the one that has to write it. You know, I, I'll try. Um, and I think you do have people out there doing that. So I think you need it all. You need someone who is going to, you know, just write those truthful poems, no matter how painful they are or how, how painful they read on a page. You need um, people like Ross Gay, who are going to have those delightful poems that lift up your spirits. But whoever you are as a poet, I say stick stick with who you are as a poet. Mm-hmm. You know, don't try to be someone else. If you're having trouble, like I'm having trouble, if you're having trouble, quote unquote, lifting people's spirits, and maybe someone needs to just connect with you in a different way. You know, there are people out there who are writing, you know, more lighthearted um, poems. I try. I don't know how successful I'm going to be at it, but if I'm not, that's okay too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, because it comes back to the truth, you know, and writing your truth is so important. Mm-hmm. That's what we connect to anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, well, let's close out with one last poem. Rollerblader. Every morning, I watch the stranger with locked rollerblade by my step. I sit with one leg snaked over the other in a floral dress, wearing ten billion colors to compete with sunrise. My body, hidden and revealed by moving shadows, hopes to give him something in return for the gift he gives me every dawn. I perch on concrete in so many hues of brown overheated, watching him dance in white linen sweatpants and bare chest with birth and death in his movements. Citron figs and papaya on his tongue. He rattles and pumps. My organs shift and swing toward the sun, a black orchid singing. Yeah, that was Rollerblader. Another beautiful poem and so much music in here. Uh, thanks so much for being a guest, uh, Sean. It was great thank talking you. to you. So much fun. And, uh, and, and thank love you. A lot of fun. Yeah. yeah thank you. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Yeah, definitely my pleasure. Uh, yeah, thanks for being here and, and hope to see some more poems soon. All right. Thank you. Uh, take care. All right, bye-bye. That was Sean R. Jones, of course, today's guest. And her book is Date of Birth from Percy Press. You can find all of Sean's poems and all of her work. More about it at seanrjones.com. That's Sean, S-H-A-W-N-R, jones.com. Now, um, we're going to take a quick break and go to our open lines, as we always do. And the open lines work like this. So first of all, email your poems. Whatever you'd like to share. It can be poems about current events. It can be poems about um, the prompt, which we had this week. Um, it can be poems that you wrote recently, that you published recently. Whatever you'd like to share, please uh, email them first to openmic, that's open M-I-C at rattle.com and then find the Zoom link, which I'm about to paste into Facebook and YouTube. I'll pin it to the top so everybody can see it, even if they come in a little later. Um, and join us, but only if you'd like to share a poem. Um, if you'd like to share a poem, Come on, join us. If you don't have a poem and just want to listen and enjoy the open lines, all the great poems that we always have, then uh, just sit tight right where you are. But either way, I'll be right back with more poetry. And we're back. Thanks for your patience. Uh, sorry if the uh, <laughs> if there's been noise during the show. 
The uh, this this new uh, house I'm in is a hundred plus years old, and the windows are weird, and they don't fit sh curtains right away. So anyway, the wind's picking up, and it's like blowing the blinds, which are actually outside all over the place. So I don't know if that comes up or not, but it's been like every time I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa what's going on? It's like a hurricane out there. But um, yeah, thanks everybody for being here for the open lines. Let's see um what we have here. So this week's prompt was right here. It was uh, inspired by last week's guest, Francesca Bell, and her poem, uh, Where We Are Most Tender, which used extended metaphor. The prompt was this. Um, write about a personal relationship using an extended metaphor throughout the entire poem. And so that was the prompt. This was my poem, and um, I wasn't sure what to write about. And then I had this actual experience happen this afternoon, had a little trip to the hardware store. And so uh, this became my uh, my poem. This is, uh, oops, hang on a second. It is getting a handle on it. One day the handle came off in my hand. What had turned now turned nothing. I took a closer look. The tines on the spigot didn't match the shape of the spindle. Something must be missing, I thought. I took it to the store, handed it off to the clerk. He held it up to the light. Something must be missing, he said. If you dig in the dirt, you might find it. But we know that it's broken. Replace the whole bib, he said. You'll be happy. Twenty three ninety five plus tax. That is my uh, getting a handle on it, my uh, extended metaphor poem. And uh, let's see what you all have. We have uh, not that many people on, so feel free if you want to share two poems. Uh, I think we're going to have time for that today. No extra guests as well. So uh, let's go up first with uh, Carla Schwartz. Hey, Carla, how are you doing? Hi, can you hear me? I can, yeah. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing very well. Thank you. Thank you. Um, on the lake, which is always wonderful, even when the weather's bad. So, <laughs> oh, is the um, weather bad right now, or is it good? It's been uh, kind of dark, rainy, um, and uh, yesterday the winds were totally crazy, mm -hmm. and um, we went out in the kayak, and it was a blast. So, <laughs> <laughs> That's great. do you get? I mean, I get just terrible motion sickness. Just even on a on a big like cruise ship, I'm like down in the Dramamine. <laughs> do you do you have any of that at all, or do you just get used I, to it over time, or just never had a problem? I know I've had definitely had problems and especially if we're on the houseboat for a long time then I will sometimes have problems mm -hmm. when there's big boat wakes that come by and you know rock the boat a lot but um no not this was fun we were like hitting the waves you know so um <laughs> it was like a roller coaster it was really it was quite a blast well, so cool. well like kids, kids would definitely love that <laughs> so yeah. uh, so what do you have that you want to share today carla so i'm gonna just do the one poem i mm -hmm. sent in um which is maybe not quite the prompt but sort of like the prompt and um sort of well the prompt prompted me to write this poem let's put it that way and um just make sure i have my mouse here okay, okay. So it's called My Father's Impermanence. I live in this chair now, my home, my bed, my waking dreams. My daughter, she worries about everything, so I don't have to. The pressure on my bladder illustrates the, the Poincaré conjecture. I can't remember the details, just know there's a map and I have to pee. To stand up from my recliner reminds me of my last trip to China. A pain in the ass to get there, but oh, what 
relief to arrive. Today, to walk to the bathroom is a hike up Bear Mountain, the flat part of the main trail, all my walker shuffle is good for. While I stand from my chair, dappled light shines in through the blinds and the trash collectors drive by. While in my chair, I face the television from which I catch a word or two and then work the stories into my dreams. I don't face the windows, the world that passes me by. A small screen on the coffee table displays photos from my life, and here's where my other daughter appears live. She's not here, doesn't see what I don't know. I don't know what I don't know until someone asks. I had the eye surgery a few years back, so I can see my thoughts flow from my, me like way through gauze. My brain feels like cheese. I like cream cheese and bagel. I do know this is no life I lead. That's why I close my eyes. That's why I nod off to sleep. That is until Poincaré creeps into my dreams. Oh, fascinating poem. Thank you for sharing that. My father's impermanence. I have to look that up. Poincaré. I, I think I know what you're. The, yeah, the yeah, I think I know. Yeah, I'm kind the of familiar mapping, with that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, between uh, homeomorphisms between um, space, you know, spaces. Very, very uh, heavy geometry uh, theorem. So. Yeah, um, yeah. Anyway. Well, very interesting. Great, excellent metaphor there, Bar or Carla. And uh, and yeah, I'm gonna have to because I remember that, but I don't really quite remember it. So I'm gonna go look it up after the show. But thanks for okay. sharing. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Take care. Yep. Yep. That was Carla Schwartz with my father's impermanence. Let's go to Nivedita next because she's actually here live, and we want to catch her before she has to go to work, probably. Um, hey, Nivy, how you doing today? Me too. I'm doing great, thank you. How about you? I'm doing great. It's great to have you on. It looks like you might be at work, maybe. <laughs> um, no, I'm actually at home getting ready to be ah, for in seven years, so I'll be out to the door in about 10 minutes. Okay, cool. Well, I'm glad we caught you before you had to leave. So what what was it that you'd like to share? Um, a prompt poem, as usual, an extended metaphor. Mm -hmm. uh, so this isn't about any personal relationship. I mean, I didn't have any ones that I had tried about, but a general one about sort of what it would be like if romantic love goes wrong. Mm -hmm. So that, that's what this is about. Yeah. Okay, let's hear it. Love is like a pair of shoes. Loving you is like breaking in a new pair of shoes forever. And not just any shoes, but a pair of scarlet heels. Scarlet, like the color of my blood that flows freely with every cutting remark that you make. Scraped and scratched, the words take time to heal. But before they can, heal I mean, the heel of one shoe snaps, unable to take any more weight. And it is not a clean break. <laughs> no, that would be too easy. Even from the trash can where these shoes belong, the jagged, broken edges still poke and wound. 
Uh, that's a great poem. Thanks so much for sharing that, Nivy. And it, it just, you know, the set of metaphor just works so well as a thing to do in poems because there's a way that your brain is like always trying to like like compare and compare and compare. It makes it really fun to read knowing that's what's going on. Yeah. I think the point is that most poems are metaphorical, mm-hmm. not completely extended metaphor, but at least for the most part without realizing it, I think that's what comes out. So it's actually great to have this as a poetry form. It just sort of works really, really, really well for some thoughts and ideas, mm-hmm. especially like these. Yeah, no, really well said. And always great to see you. Thanks. So good to join, Nivi. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Tim. Yep. It was lovely talking yep. to you. Bye-bye. Care. Bye. Have a good day. Bye-bye. Thank you. It was Nivi DeCarthic. Once again, with love is like a pair of shoes. Uh, next up is Brian O'Sullivan. <clears throat> Hello. Hey, Hi, Jim. Brian. Yeah, how are you doing tonight? Uh, pretty good, pretty good. Enjoyed the interview a lot. Yeah, that was a fun one. Um, yeah. Yeah, so what do you have to share? Oh, okay, so I didn't do the prompt poem, but I sent a poem that I wrote uh, for Poets Respond. Mm-hmm. Um, it was written based on seeing the story about the spelling bee champion and seeing um, the guy who won the spelling bee, how excited he was uh, to win. And I was thinking a little bit about words in spelling bees, words in poetry. Um, it's called, it's pretentiously titled in Latin, Orthographia Apis, which according to uh, um, <laughs> Google Translate is the art of the spelling bee. Yeah, I couldn't um, believe, uh, I, I remember this from this from the poetry response <laughs> submissions and these words, that, that, that people really spelled these words, I can't believe it. <laughs> I, I wouldn't even be able to really pronounce them. So I know, I don't know what they mean, time. I don't know how to pronounce them, and yet people are just spelling them, <laughs> I don't know how fun. that works, but... <laughs> It's kind of what it's about, too. But yeah, I had an idea. I'd write a Sestina with N words that were spelled correctly by this year's spelling bee champ. Shistorachia, Prabolutic, Trisitorion, Tolacester, Samophile. It was a problematic idea. Though merely a Prabolutic one, apparently means like a preliminary one. Uh, neither you nor I needed to say these monster words a full seven times. As it is, I'm sorry for making us juggle them even once or twice, and I hope the juggling doesn't twist our spines into pseudo schisteracus. But I will say that bending our mouths around strange words can be just like the Solcester, once paid by brewers, a little tax for a great pleasure. There's no messier, juicier pleasure than words. Their strange, familiar feel in our mouths, the way they turn our tongues and almost crack our jaws, they make us human. They push out. They push our boats out there to the map's edge, where limitation meets possibility, where negative space meets positive longing, in the zwitterion of the imagination. Precision is important, even wondrous. When I think of kids who can spell these words cold, while I can't even copy them consistently, but the real art lies in words' fascination. We are not samophiles in the sandy soil. But we are humble creatures, semantophiles, living in the muck and mud of words. And it's no wonder a 14-year-old loves to play down in that dirt. When we look at the joy in Devshaw's face, don't we aspire to that kind of play? Making words our own, not caring that we need to take a chem course to really know what Switerion means, but just exulting in the sounds and shapes of language. Yeah, and that is so true. It makes me think about how, you know, like, lucky it feels that there's words I don't know. Like, we have such a yeah. rich language with so many dang words yeah. that uh, we'll never learn them all, which is a really nice thing to, to realize. Like, I'll die not knowing half of the words in the English language. <laughs> Still so, learning more. Yeah. yeah, very fun. Well, thanks for sharing that, Brian. Yeah, always Thank fun. you. Yep, take care. So Brian O'Sullivan with uh, Ars Orthographe Apis.
<laughs> okay. Yeah, Nate Jacob is next. Hey, good evening. Hey, Nate. How are you doing today? I'm doing okay. How are you doing? I'm doing great. It's a, it's a fun night of poetry once again. I agree. Uh, yeah. So what do you got for us? Hey, I did a uh, prompt poem. Uh-huh. Uh, explain a couple things here. First of all, and least importantly, this week I discovered how to do an M dash on my computer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it appears in this poem. I know, right? Alt 151. That's how I do it. <laughs> uh, option shift dash. <laughs> well, there you go. That's that's a little easier to remember. And I may have abused it in this poem. We'll see. <laughs> All right. Well, so did Emily Dickinson, and it worked fine for her. <laughs> Uh, this is a uh, poem I wrote after a uh, the daughter of some friends of ours passed away at 11 years of age. Oh, that's, I'm sorry to hear that. Uh, really sad. She'd been born with some health issues and uh, lived through them and really uh, changed a lot of lives in her short time. So uh, this was written to her family um, called Another Story Simply Ended Too Soon. It's not as simple as saying the story was too short. Any book is bound to end too soon when the star of it all, who arrived on scene in a sweeping rush of pain and fear, was the driving force behind so much of truth and beauty, becomes another in a long line of characters lost too soon, carried up in a hero's send-off, a breathtaking last chapter. This is the terrifying blank page separating story from epilogue that leaves you turning the pages back, back, looking for her however the hero meets her end meaning is lost to you for now letters will still form words but will fill other pages in other books while in the book you hold in its white spaces in its two wide margins is the lost child you will ever read into every possible thing perhaps at first there are simply no words to make sense of it maybe for now You can do nothing but page back again and again, denying that your own next page could be empty and unwritten. But read we must. Words will come. A sweeping rush of truth of life. Beautiful. Really touching poem, Nate. And it's so strange, too, because I have a friend who um, lost a niece in the same way. And there's like no way it could be the same person, but she was about 11 years old, too. And... um, I don't know. That's that's really really strange, but really touching. So thanks so much for sharing that. Thank you very much. Yeah, thanks, Nate. Thank you. Yeah, it was Nate Jacob with another story simply ended too soon. Um, uh, let's see. Looks like Anne is next. Um, Hello. Yeah, and and Van Widgerden. That's what I see. The VW, yes. and I want to make sure I said it right. <laughs> <Yeah>. so, <laughs> okay. Pretty good. <laughs> yeah, not bad. So, uh, so how are you doing tonight, Anne? Or today, I Great, should say. Thanks. Yeah. Yes, it's a few hours ahead. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in the day, in the morning. So, um, but we're doing great. Yeah. So, so what do you have to share? Uh, so, um, this is not a prompt poem, but uh, listening to that great interview, uh, it's kind of speaking. Um, it's just that whole process Sean was sharing about sharing the truth and not policing yourself reminds me of um, just how. Uh, freeing it is to write poetry that you're not thinking about what people will think, how how people will uh, judge you or judge the situation. And uh, so many people who know me seem to think that if I would write poetry, it would all be sweetness and light. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But actually what wants to come out is anything but. 
And living here in the Philippines, um, writing poetry keeps me sane in the sense of when you see the injustices that are happening, especially toward the poor, uh, and that's whom we, with whom we work uh, as a, uh, for an NGO, providing education for kids in the slum areas. You see again and again that poverty is um, the, 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 one of the worst things that happens when you're extremely poor. It's not even just lack of resources, but lack of justice. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I sometimes, instead of sleeping at night, I need to write poetry. Yeah. And this is a yeah. poem that came out um, actually a few years ago, uh, but has to do with the drug war that's unfortunately ongoing in the Philippines. Mm -hmm. So it's called uh, Bleeding Out. Bleeding out. This is how the rich abandon the poor. We forget them because we can, over and over again. Don't you see? This is how the poor stay voiceless, common slaves to our dictates. They cannot hold us to account. Do you see? This is how the poor die young, victims of the impunity that pays cops for their blood. Have you seen the blood, blood on the street? It cries out, even if you don't. Hmm. Yeah, really important moving poem. They're bleeding out. Thanks so much for sharing that. And and what is it specifically that that you do? I'm kind of interested in that. Uh, how do you how uh, do you manage to help? Because you know everybody uh, would, so, would love to help. Yeah, no, we have we're so lucky. We have the best job in the world mm -hmm. in the universe. So my husband and I founded a, a um, an NGO that. Uh, helps kids in the slum areas access education. So from preschool through to university. So we organize sponsorships so that uh, they can go to the local schools and universities. And then when they're fully educated, they uh, can get normal jobs, you mm -hmm. know, teachers, accountants, uh, even policemen, um, uh, whatever their dream is. And otherwise they would be scavenging through the garbage, yeah. like their parents. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we've been on and off doing this for about 30 years. Oh, wow. But not the entire time, but uh, on and off. Uh, so commuting sometimes between the Netherlands, England, and the Philippines. Mm -hmm. But yeah. Yeah, well, that's really amazing. Education and, works. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. And I'm sure, you know, having that education and then, you know, passing it down to their own, you know, family too and helping. It's it's yes, one of those it things that, the family. Yeah, that multiplies yeah. itself. Yeah, that's wonderful. Well, well so glad yeah. to hear that and, and glad you can find a release too in poetry. That's an important part of it. Thank you. Yeah. Well, thanks Thank so much, Thank you Anne. for the possibility to share it. Thank yeah, you. Always Bye. Always a pleasure. Thanks. Bye. That was uh, Anne Van Widgerton with uh, Bleeding Out. And uh, next up, we have a Dick Westheimer. Hey, Tim Green. Hey, Dick. How are you doing today? Good. Uh, whatever sound you were talking about in the background was not disturbing the rest of us. Well, that's Just good. That's why, me. you know, people ask why I have the mic so close. I have it down low so it doesn't pick up stuff like that. And I guess it works. But I have, I don't know if you can see it, but that those curtains are like on the outside of the house. So like, because oh. the windows are like shutters. And so they just bang when the wind's blowing. And, um, yeah, it kept, like, startling me <laughs> during the episode. Yeah. But I, I'm glad that nobody heard it. So that's good. Well, you made it through. The, the interview was was terrific. Yeah, Sean was great. Yeah, she really yeah, was. Sean was great. I loved her sense of poetics and uh, and her poems, of course. It was terrific. Yeah. Uh, so what do you want um, to share, Dick? Um uh, so I do have two, but I, I can limit it to one, as I see. No, we, have, uh, we still have a half an hour. There's only a few people left. So, yeah, let's do okay. two. 
Okay. Well, I sent you a prompt poem. Yay, a prompt poem. I don't get to them every week, but I was kind of disappointed in my Poets Respond poem, so I said, I need a better poem. I need a bigger boat. Uh, And I love the prompt. I had written a couple poems to it. Uh, So uh, this one kind of explains itself. It's a rekindling of of an old high school friendship. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah, let's hear it. Uh, titled, Unlike the Kind of Tintiness That Drives Me to Despair. He makes a small sound in me that I nearly never hear, like a ringing in my ears at some certain frequency that resonates with just us two. Like those moments I recall Jerry G's steel guitar on blows against the empire, or he's out mowing with the old John Deere and sees a red-winged blackbird fly up from the pasture. We'll text, this made me think of you. Send a pic or vid or just the name of a favorite blind faith song. I'll ask if he's heard from his daughter who disowned him, if as if there is such a thing. No, he'll respond then, I love you, brother. And I hear in his text, his arch laugh that always sounded like pain, but the kind a believer knows shows he's alive. He texts about Jesus, and I send him a line from a Rachel Custer poem. I believe in a God who finds what he is looking for. He sends me a picture of Frank Zappa with a flower in his hair. This is the sort of tintiness I can bear, the music of an aging friend whispering, in tongues. Uh, that was great. And, and getting the Rachel Custer uh, line in there too, is really cool. But I just love poem. I love extended metaphor in poetry. It's like kind of my favorite thing, maybe, <laughs> you know, just to have the whole poem and then making those connections as the poem goes through. Really good stuff. Uh, and yeah. then you said you had a poet respond poem. Which one of those do you want to do? Uh, well, I think there was only one. It was the poetic impulse of the dead not forgotten. If I send another one, I don't remember. Well, there was one on like May 31st. So I wasn't sure which, which deadline uh, that was. Yeah, yeah, I, I wasn't happy with that one either. So, <laughs> <laughs> But but I, I do want to read this one out loud because I liked writing it. I, mm-hmm. um, and I just want to hear what it's like to read it into the space. Yeah, definitely. Always a great use of uh, open mic. So So what was the story? Uh, the story, it's a perennial story every year of um, um, at the cemetery above Omaha Beach in Normandy. Uh, the French adopt uh, adopt the graves and um, they wash them, they maintain them. And whenever there's going to be an influx of Americans coming through or tourists coming through, they bring sand up from Omaha Beach and they rub it into the marble white stones so that it looks like almost gilded. The letters oh, are gilded. Wow, and they wipe it clean and you have the, the brilliant white stone with the uh, gilded lettering. And they just do it with such love and care. It's, it's, uh, and this is very well known, I found out, among, other, among folks for whom uh, this, the ritual of visiting the cemetery is important. Um, and uh, just the laying on of hands of this uh, brought up some memories for me yeah it's interesting we got to show a little clip of that too so they're really interesting to see too yeah um and if you look year after year they show different clips of the same thing and mm-hmm. it, and it's, it's it's always very stunning mm-hmm. but this is the first time i'd seen it yeah poetic impulse of the dead not forgotten 
What palms to the dead beneath these white stones write? And when they recite their verse, do any declaim lines about the French men above the ground who wash the cemetery's marble crosses and stars with the same care any would bathe a dying mother? Or like me, shave and sponge the cooling skin of my father as the banked coals that were the furnace of him faded. These warrior poets under the soil of Colliver-sur-Mer had no sons at their sides when they died, no hospice rooms with the sighing of aged lovers, the scent of mild soap, the lovely splash of washrag in warm water, the gentle scrape of razor over stubbled face, like my dad had. He got all these because he did not die on that beach. Not even I remember Dad so reverently as those 9,386 who rest under the white stones are solemnized by French villagers. They gather to gild the lettering on their graves, to sponge the stones until the odes of buried poet warriors sing their buried poems alive. I will go to the place where my dad's ashes rest and wash his marble marker until I conjure his voice back into the world. Yeah, beautiful poem, Dick. I love that. And it was worth the price of admission just for that cooling skin of my father as the bank coals that were the furnace of him faded. That's really a beautiful, touching image and, and all across the board. A great poem. Thanks for sharing that. Oh, I appreciate that. Thanks so much, Tim. Yeah, take care. Okay, have a good week. Yeah, Bye. you too. That was a Dick Westheimer. The second one was uh, The Poetic Impulse of the Dead Not Forgotten. Let's go next to, uh, let's go to Monica Garg. Or Monica Dobos, maybe. <laughs> we'll see. Yes, that's correct. That's my marriage day. <laughs> hey, Monica. Hi, everyone. Yeah, how are you doing tonight? <laughs> I'm doing great. You know, I've been trying so hard to write a prompt poem unsuccessfully. <laughs> but um, I do have a smoking poem. Uh, smoking is such a heart-wrenching topic for me because my mom mm -hmm. uh, used to smoke two packs a day until she died of a heart attack. Uh, I mean, people smoke so much in Europe, unfortunately. They still do. Yeah, it's um, rough. So I have one um, which is called How Not to Quit Smoking. Interesting. How Not to Quit Smoking. Define cigarette without mentioning filter or coffee or the person holding it. The boots were ugly, no question about it. My mom knew it. My sister knew it. I didn't. Russian soldier type, two sizes bigger. Only God knows why. Clickety-clackety, knee-high, pointy, imposing, like a school counselor who complains about this student with sapphic tendencies who knocks on her door at impossible hours without making an appointment when she's been trying so damn hard to quit smoking. Define boots without mentioning pimpled face, braces, lost 14-year-old. Well, you can easily say you're trying to quit smoking without mentioning the name of the girl with gigantic boots to a room full of teachers. Oh, very interesting poem. Thanks so much for sharing that, Monica. You know, think about the, the quitting smoking and, and that poem and the other one. It's just, you know, the best <laughs> business model is getting people addicted. And so we're sort of surrounded by addictions of various types because it's just the best way to sell products. And uh, yeah, it's really heartbreaking. Yep, 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 yes yeah. it is. Thank you. Yeah, well, thanks so much for that. Always a pleasure. Glad to see you again. It's been a bit, I think. So uh, good to see you again. Yep. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Okay, take Bye. care. Bye. 
as a Malika Dobos or Malika Moo, depending on uh, your persuasion. <laughs> uh, let's go next to a first-time caller. Stacy is here. Hello, everybody. Um, thank you for sneaking me in. I've been listening um, not on the Zoom meeting, but on the Facebook page and didn't realize I had to <laughs> log into here. But Oh, no, it's perfect. Managed, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so how it works quickly. is, you know, we can all watch on Facebook or YouTube, but then to join, to share a poem, we do it on the Zoom. So it's perfect. It, it did it perfectly, and I'm glad to have you here. Where are you calling from, first of all, too? Because I haven't, uh, I don't think you've been on before. Yeah, I'm in Green Bay, Wisconsin. Oh, great. Um, and um, it's humbling to have listened to Sean earlier. Um, you know, her work is really, you know, it's so socially relevant. And I feel like my work is just not socially what relevant. Mm. It's personally relevant. And Well, the personal I mean, is that, social, too. So I think they all relate in a lot of different ways. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so um, my, uh, my poem is called Weather This Tempest. And... Um, yeah, go ahead. I have it up uh, for my for the reviewers at home, but you have to sh sh read off your own sheet, too, because of the delays okay. and stuff. So, yeah, go ahead. All right. Then I will go to where I can read it yeah. and um, put it in front of my face here. <laughs> Perfect. Hey, I should have warned you about that, too, as a first-time caller. Cause, uh, yeah, I'm yeah. a little bit uh, fumbling a little bit here with this. Oh, um, no, don't uh, worry at all. It's great to, great to have you. So, all right. Weather this tempest. Okay. 3 a.m., jolted awake. Mighty shouts of thunder cracking your name. Electric tendrils summon. Depart comfort sheets of woven grain for unrelenting sheets of God sobs, God pain. Arise, brace your head against gusts of drunken babble. Shoulder the stinking fallout of Dionysian wretch. Arise, step boldly onto cardinal battleground and fight, struggle, toil. Build looming potent banks against rising waters of apathy, detachment, guilt, and killer shame. Those tricksters lying in wait at depths of spirit and bottled liquid grain. Arise, collect your washed up, washed out, tangled flotsam soul Claim your albatross and break free from wrecked ancestral vessels. Gilded hulls conceal thirsty rattletrap bones. Arise, let no fragment waft away to settle and rot in gutter or ditch. Glean your lessons of affliction. Gather your kernels of vitality. Heave them up to higher ground. Gird them in bountiful loam. While thunder groans and clashes, chain lightning writhes and flashes, God still weeps and gnashes. Arise, sever the velveteen shackles, forsake your tawdry liquid coverlet, betray false comfort, cast off mock linen sham, flee the phony bastion, embrace the charged and teeming night and weather this tempest for love. Yeah, great poem. Thanks so much for sharing that. And the extended metaphor kind of works through that poem as well. It's really excellent you know, to see how that goes. I love the gusts of drunken babble, too. That's my favorite line there. Thanks so much for sharing that, Stacey. Thanks for listening. Appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, my pleasure. Take care. You too. Oh, we didn't catch you. Wait, wait, Stacey. We didn't catch your last name. Um, Stacey. Oh, I'm Stacey Vandenput. Ah, Stacey Vandenput. Yeah, well, great to have you. Thanks for being here. Hope you come again. And that other po poet, I don't see his name up anymore, who who's, uh, wrote of the 
the cemetery stones. It was very touching. I just lost my mother and went mm. through hospice care with her at her end of life, and and that was very touching to to listen. Yeah, that was Dick Westheimer, and he's here every week. So uh, so come back awesome. next week to see him more. But yeah, thanks so much, Daisy. Yeah, thank you. Yep, take care. You too. Yeah, I think those weather this tempest. Um, next up, let's go to Kevin Kane. Hi, Tim. Hey, Kevin. How are you doing tonight? I'm good. I'm really good. I'm really enjoying the poems. I like Dick's so much. And um, and I was uh, really moved by Sean's talk. And I think that her idea of um, the sound of the poem being paramount and mm-hmm. the, the rhythm and the the rhymes. And I, I tried to hit that in the prompt poem that I wrote this week. Perfect. Yeah. And there's and a video, a- too. So what is the... Um- what is the video? Oh, you know what? I, I had sent you something else, too. Oh, okay. There's a video of me reading a poem. I, I have a um, a poem that I get work mm-hmm. um, going around and, and reading. A, uh, I, I work with um, Negro League baseball players. Oh, interesting. Wow. And the history of baseball and literature. And mm-hmm. I, have a, I was commissioned by the... Um, the Baseball Hall of Fame about 10 years ago to write a, a new version of Casey at the Bat, a Negro League version that I, I get some work traveling around and, and reading. So I sent you that because I, I would love to share it with you, but I'm going to read a, a prompt poem. Yeah, tonight. sure. Do you mind? I don't know where this is hosted. Is it yours? Is it somewhere I can can I play this? Is that OK? I'll play the video, too, after you, you do it, if you'd like. Oh, yeah. You know what? It's it's lengthy. Oh, it's, is it? Yeah, it's 17 minutes. Okay, well, it's a little long, but I'll check it out myself and maybe yeah, find an excerpt do. for next week yeah. or something. Yeah, I, I, would, so I would love you to. Yeah, okay. Um, so I, I responded to the um, a poem about a personal relationship with mm-hmm. an extended metaphor. Okay. And this is, an, uh, this is called A Sinking Feeling. My heart breaks like the ocean breaks, not like Moses splitting the Red Sea, not my heart not cleaved in half, standing steady, walled and waiting in two patient parts, only then to rush back, having been passed through and again, to be unrippled, tranquil and whole. No, my heart breaks like the ocean breaks, with bits of debris broken up and leaping in pieces, detritus floating on the foam, lightning flashes, brightening snapshots of dashed hopes, like drinks splashed out over the rail, Tossed into the drink, half-heartedly dispersed and gone, lost in small waves rising up off larger waves, always rising to and always falling back, lacking only an oil slick or a safe harbor and forever seeking higher ground. My heart is like the ocean, and there you have it, a metaphor extended in constant motion. An ocean, 98 parts salt tears, alive and dark in its depth. I wave and it waves back my heart. I float an idea and let the idea sink down, beating to its chambered bottom, where sand and pearls and shell stations fuel the fire in my head, thinking only of honey pink shells like pearly teeth that bite hard into coral reefs. I see the seashore. I'm a creature of comfort, a creature, too, of repetition, with a rapier wit, riding a wave of sea foam green fingertips of love, licking at my toes and tugging me back from the precipice 
of sinking ships and salty waters that whisper low and lascivious. You see, I said, we're from the sea. A clammy sweat marks my brow, my bows stuck in the mud, washed up and left out to dry, still and always crawling out of the sea. A million years, it seems, since first trying, with stubby flippers not yet feet, a circus stunt hooked by a nightmare of tensile strength from nutrient-rich seawaters we are, you and me, washed up and hung on a spar, deprived of sleep. Crossing the bar, a place out on the deck is all I need, a place to stand is all I ask of you, a task to do, and a clean, dry place to call my own. A succession of depth charges made on my card send surging tides rising up over my curbed desires with the seasick madness of King Creole, old King Neptune, King Crab, King Wenceslas on a half shell, Oysters Rockefeller on Black Diamond Bay, and you and me playing beach blanket bingo and boiling peanuts under a towel. Oh, the hours we had spent in bliss floating away on a pillow of warm water with well-oiled tans and delta blues sung from the heart. The irritating grain, the ingratiating sand in the shoe is all that's left. The irritation turned to pearls that we should have cast before swine, like a hook on a line hoping to bring home the bacon and seeing the next day, hungry still, only a little seaweed left behind drying kelp in hooded piles and sargasso and sea grapes turned almost to wine. I see myself still, you say, narcissistically reflected on the surface of the sea. You still waving to me and me still waving back, weaving drunkenly. On sponge-soft ocean floors I stand alone, like Kukulin, fighting the invulnerable tide with shield and sword bound with a belt to his still strong back and pierced side. If you fell off the back of the Staten Island Ferry, as you swirled and whirled your way down through the foam, would you give me one last thought as you went under? And would you wish that you weren't drowning all alone? Yeah, great poem, Kevin. Uh, that turn to the you at the end really works well with such vivid uh, setup there too. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks. That was uh, Kevin Kane with uh, A Sinking Feeling. Thanks so much, Kevin. Thanks. Thanks, Tim. Okay. And uh, next up we have uh, Julian Matthews. Hi, Tim. Hey, Julian. How you doing? I'm good. So this is called uh, Broken Jigsaw. All right. Let's hear it. I'm broken. But so are you. And everything broken can be fixed. You just have to gather up the bits and superglue them together. They won't fit just right. Not yet, at least. But it'll hold up for now. I'm broken, but so are you. There are pieces missing because this ain't no Christmas jigsaw gift. It's not a thousand-piece picture-perfect puzzle. Certainly no Mona Lisa, no Swiss Alpine scenery. It could be 997 pieces or 998, you never know. And the pieces don't always connect either. People are a puzzle though, even to themselves. But you don't have to solve it or resolve it, or at least not yet. 
I'm broken. But so are you. We may be fractured, but fractures heal. We may have defects, but we're not defective. We may be damaged goods, but we still can be delivered. All returns are accepted here. I'm broken, but so are you. After a while, you grow the gift of glue. They'll keep it all together from the inside. Don't let your bits make you bitter. Embrace your fragile fragments. Find joy in your jagged edges. Share your shards with others, and as the sages say, make peace with your pieces. They're all a part of you now. I'm broken, and so are you. Maybe if we ever come together, we can crack the code to this puzzle. They'll make us both whole once again. Yeah, great poem and great reading too, as always, Julian. That was great. Broken jigsaw, excellent extended metaphor, and uh, and really really powerful poem. Thanks for sharing that. Glad to see you. Thank you. Yep. As a uh, Julian Matthews of Broken Jigsaw. And uh, last up on the Zoom is Lucy Chow. Hello, Tim. Hi, Lucy. How are you doing today? I'm doing right. I, I sent a prompt poem. Mm-hmm. Um, but I sort of turned the prompt on its head. Uh-huh. The prompt asked us to uh, write um, about a, a personal relationship using an extended metaphor. But Actually, my poem is sort of using uh, a personal uh, relationship as the extended metaphor to write about something else. Oh, that's interesting. So, <laughs> so um, actually, it's a personal relationship as a metaphor of gardening, starting seeds. So I titled it Inverse Metaphor. Interesting. Well, let's hear it. Inverse metaphor, starting seeds. They come in brilliantly colored packets, your gifted, doomed children. At birth, their Apgar scores are Simone Biles sticking the landing, beaming with her huge, dazzling teeth. You want no horse-palmed ancient man to nurse them from bottles and cans. You would rather tuck their tiny limbs under your epidermis, breastfeed them constantly with sweet milk as good as honey, as good as blood. Failing that, you bake a brownie as big as a hill or a brown mammy's bosom, coo and croon to them, baby, dig in, dig. One day or another at sunrise, you find some of these theories proudly holding up their first poem or drawing, a perfect haiku, whole and inexorable in its utter artlessness, or a doodle outdoing Picasso in his final years. You felicitate yourself, oh my kids, oh geniuses. You put on the vinyl, may you always know the truth and see the light surrounding you. Safe in the belief that the brilliant light will always recur to them, genial, timely, and forever true. It never occurs to you that when they die, they will take every youthful masterpiece with them into the underworld, and that they die soon. They die soon. 
One day, a wren brings her Matthew title Annunciation, and he rises to meet the terrible angel who shows them shriveled to nothings on their sweet beds, glistening with dew. Now you cannot even resort to gardening therapy as a sup supplementary treatment for grief, because though a snake serum might be an antidote to its own poison, repeating the same grade till you eventually turn in a beautiful batch of fully grown living beings will never be emotionally viable. You stare at the discoloring corpses saying to yourself, where is the way to go? For the moment, it is avoiding the balcony altogether. Order your husband or daughter to take the leftover brownie to the dump. Well, that was great. I love the way you inverted and switched that around, that metaphor. Thanks for sharing that, Lucy. Thank you, Tim. Have a um, good night. Yep, yep. Have a good night and a good week, too. That was Inverse Metaphor, Starting Seeds by Lucy Chow. Um, <clears throat> well, that's going to close it off for the uh, Zoom callers. We have a few people who emailed poems in who couldn't be here right now. Let's read a few of those. Um, let's see. We have Joyce Stahl hasn't been here for a while. She has a poem, um, uh, and then the Saiku Project. Um, yeah, so, uh, the Saiku Project is, of course, something that, uh, has, um, science-based haiku. And, uh, we'll see Joyce Stahl's poem. The, uh, description, let me put this on the screen, too. Um... The description here is the composer Ludwig van Beethoven left behind locks of his hair and written wishes that his body be examined for science. That's interesting. I didn't know that. I find it fascinating that DNA could still be obtained from the hair after so much time has passed. Researchers are trying to determine the causes of his deafness, other ailments, and causes of death. Only a portion of those questions have been answered, leading to the last line of my haiku. And so here's Joyce Stahl's haiku from the Saiku Project. Um, analyzing locks. Beethoven's sequenced genome, unfinished symphony. Analyzing locks, Beethoven's sequenced genome, unfinished symphony. So excellent haiku. Thanks for sharing that, Joy. The Saiku Project is really fun. Um, it's actually mostly scientists sharing haiku, talking about their science. So that's an interesting project they have going on there. I have a whole chitter Twitter discussion with uh, the, uh, the, the guy who founded it. It's very interesting. And, and someday maybe we'll have him... Uh, in some kind of interview format. But thanks for sharing that, Joy. That was interesting. Um, next up, let's go to um, Susan Talley. And Susan's poem here is another, uh, as a prompt poem, Glittering of Sunlight Flickered on the Grass. Let me put this up. This is Susan Talley. Here we go. Glitter of sunlight flickered in the grass. Pulling on a yellow shawl, you adjusted your fabric from the inside as if checking for symmetry. With each rise and fall of elbow-wing, dots of shisha, mirrors, move with you. When you made yourself visible, I noticed the sky was a shade of sermon blue. Was I sitting in the right spot? Your approach a measured delight, a distraction from my self-absorption. At the same time, if you were music, you would be an aria, hitting the high note, like nectar to the flower, the moment not too soon. A beautiful poem. Thanks so much for sharing that. Once again, that was Susan Talley with Glitter of Sunlight Flickered in the Grass. 
Um, let's see what else we have. Uh, Katie Dozier's got a poem for us. An American sonnet, she says triumphantly. Um, Breathe deeply to extend the metaphor. Yeah, this is uh, Katie Dozier's poem. Breathe deeply to extend the metaphor. The first time I remember that feeling was on a toboggan with the other kids. An impossible carved-out log, us turned to frozen peas inside the wooden pod, gliding across a lake of ice as if life would never need a flotation device. These days I smile in my sleep. I'm a chipmunk that chomped herself silly on an acorn trail. I dreamed that you were a mushroom. How I ran until the shell of darkness cracked open into a runny yoke of morning sun. So many nights I sighed as I spied the moon pull in the rapture of a riptide. But as the water clings to air, well, you were always there. A beautiful poem, Breathe Deeply to Extend the Metaphor by Katie Dozier. And of course, me and Katie host the uh, Poetry Space on Twitter every Thursday at at, uh, 3 p.m. Eastern. Uh, This week we're going to be talking with um, um, contributors to the NFC Poets issue, the uh, issue of Rattle that just came out. We're going to have a bunch of the people in that tribute theme section talking about NFTs and poetry and how they can go together and um, all that good stuff. So tune in, but only on Twitter. It becomes a podcast later, though. You can find it at The Poetry Space, anywhere you find your podcasts. So I'm looking forward to talking to Katie and uh, all the guests as well. Let's see. So next we have um, Gail Hemmen sent a prop poem to, and it's very short here. There's a picture of it that goes with it. So for people who have been listening, I'll describe the picture. It's of a mirror. And um, she says, I stand behind the mirror so you can see the image flies away only for the only the flash stays. I read it again. It's kind of haiku-ish. I stand behind the mirror so you can see the image flies away. Only the flash stays. And that's for E.D. That is a another poem, another extended metaphor poem. Thanks so much for sharing that. Another very touching extended metaphor, Gal. That was Gal Hemmen. Uh, Do we have any others? Ted Guevara is here as well. Is that this week? Yep, here's Ted Guevara's poem this week. And, of course, he includes a photo, as he usually does. And this is someone uh, uh, in, a, in a trench coat running uh, through the rain, trying not to get wet with what looks like a newspaper over uh, his head. And here is Ted's poem. Rain speaks of men. Perpetual pour on print. The world is not swift enough to be outrun by a dash forward, says the rain before it's caught. She knows her maneuvers, her andragogy, if you will, that she too uses methods. Confusing it can be if ink bleeds after it is dried. She's confident that yesterday was solid, that even pomade or um, or any hair product cannot stiffen her mind. This is Rain's safe space, no other, so elusive that a paper would think twice before choosing the sex. If it becomes wet, flimsy, the words slipping off the sides, Rain still carries on. It does not mix with the ideals of man. It can't mix with another notoriety, such as war. It would be scandal if she partakes with spite and decides she's done with tomorrow, hangs up for good. What if we do it on purpose, the fright behind the darting off? Imponderable it must be, that we did not invest on wider coverage. All depends, including looks, manners. Yet there is this will to avoid. She must be a woman. Rain is eloquent, well-read, offers help to those in need. That was Ted Bernal Guevara's poem. Thanks, as always said, Rain Speaks of Men. And was that? I think that might be the last one. Let's see. Yeah, I think it's going to close it out. So let's really quickly do the Saiku for this week. And the Saiku 
Let me pull it up. It was based on this article, which lately I've been a, kind of a little more skeptical of science articles. And um, <clears throat> this is from a Washington State University. And I just we, we just tend to make like bold claims that don't really aren't supported by this, by reality. But uh, but this was still an interesting claim. And here it is against once again from the University of Washington. Uh, plants can distinguish when touch starts and stops. And so these researchers, uh, they basically looked for signals by, by touching leaves, and they found these waves of a kind of calcium um, came in different uh, wave, um, you know, wave frequencies. And so, so when you were touching the plant, there was a certain wave frequency, and then when you let go, it sort of increased in frequency as sort of a signal to the other cells around those cells, no matter which cells you were using. And I was thinking about how um, um, you know, plants grow toward light, but it really has nothing to do with... Um, the plant wanting to reach the light or any kind of consciousness or sentience or whatsoever. It's just that the cells on the far side end up stretching out because it, it improves the plant. And, and I think it's the same kind of thing going on. So saying that the plants, um, um, distinguish, I think distinguish is kind of a stretch of a word, uh, to put it lightly. But anyway, it was an interesting story that, that plants can notice and they send signals when something is touching it. So here is the Saiku that, that, uh, inspired. Springfield, every step a release. Springfield, every step a release. And that is your Psyche for the week, and that is the show for the week. Thanks, everybody. As always, it's been a really great episode. Um, next week's prompt, inspired by Sean Jones, is this. Um, let me get a, Oops, here we go. Write about a stranger you encounter this week. How are they the same as you? How are they different? And so I was thinking of that very last poem that uh, Sean read, the rollerblader poem. Um, so think of a stranger you encounter, and uh, how are they like you, and how are they different? That is your prompt for next week. That is the show. Thanks, everybody, once again for being here and participating in poetry. It's so much fun. It's my favorite thing to do every week. Next week's guest in the Rattlecast is going to be uh, Ruth Bavetta. We've been publishing Ruth for so long that she is one of the original members of Rattle back when it was a, a workshop at Jack Grape's class. Um, she's also had visual poems and our visual poetry issues as a painter, too. She's done the Ekphrastic Challenge, I think, as well, with some of her paintings. She has a new book out uh, in the last year called What's Left Over. And so we'll be talking to her, Rattlecast number 198. The prompt, once again, is right about a stranger you encounter this week. That'll be Rattlecast 198, uh, Monday, June 12th, the regular time, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Hope to see you then. Hope you have a great night in the meantime, and I will talk to you later. Good night.